Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. So beginning on the 1st of January, just days ago, a week ago, Saskatchewan, according to Premier Scott Moe, quote, uh, removed the carbon tax from home heating, making life more affordable. Saskatchewan families will no longer pay the carbon tax or the GST on the carbon tax on natural gas or electrical heating. The Premier posted that to X or Twitter. We'll have to settle on one, I guess. So one of the questions is, might the Premier and or his cabinet minister or ministers face fines or in the absolute extreme a prison sentence? That's been asked over and over. Certainly if uh, the Premier of a province of this country were to be challenged in such a manner, um, that would be a constitutional crisis like none we've ever encountered. Premier Scott Moe of Saskatchewan is with us on uh, the Roy Green Show. Premier, happy new year. Good to have you with us. Hey, Roy. It's great uh, to to be back. I hope you had a great Christmas uh, alongside all of your listeners and wishing everyone the very best in, in 2024. Thank you, Premier. So your Minister for Crown Corporations, Dustin Duncan, as I understand a lawyer now, in case the federal government proceeds to court against Saskatchewan and your government, and the minister has said he's prepared to go to prison over this issue. Now, that must be the most extreme possible development but do you have concerns? Well, I think it speaks to the, the, the flaws in not only the law um, and the jurisdictional um, the, the jurisdictional uh, rights that the federal government uh, is, is trying to uh, move into, which are, are those of provincial jurisdiction. Um, but really, uh, I think the, the larger issue that we have here is the decision that we're making in Saskatchewan to exempt the carbon tax from uh, where we can, uh, natural gas uh, used for home heating, uh, as well as electrical, uh, electricity that is used for home heating, is mirroring the very same decision that the federal government made uh, when it comes to uh, heating your home with uh, home heating fuel. So what we did try to do was to treat uh, at least Saskatchewan families equally. We ask the federal government to treat all Canadian families equally and exempt the carbon tax on all forms of home heating. Uh, the, that would add propane uh, in the case of Saskatchewan. Uh, they have to date not yet done that. We would continue to reiterate that ask of the federal government is to treat, treat all Canadian families equally when it comes to exempting the carbon tax on how, however they may heat their, their home. And what we're doing is mirroring a decision in Saskatchewan that the federal government made and uh, to have the consequences uh, bantered around that uh, potentially the federal government, I suppose, uh, could could attempt to enact are, <laughs> I, just, I think, real troublesome uh, when it comes to trying to do all we can to bring a, a nation together. Yeah, wrap your head around that is very difficult. Um, you've certainly provided the federal government with ample notice of your intent, ample notice of your concern. You've spoken certainly on this program on a number of occasions about what Saskatchewan's concerns are and your responsibility as the people of your province. It gets awfully cold in Saskatchewan, and uh, economically people are struggling across this country. So um, do, do you have any sense, has there been any communication from Mr. Gibo or Mr. Trudeau about, you know, Premier, let's sit down, let's talk, let's you know, do a Zoom call, let's make a phone call, anything at all come from the federal government? 
No, and we've offered, uh, you know, all of that uh, time and time again. The minister has written to Minister Babot, uh, uh, who would ultimately be responsible for changing uh, the, uh, the the responsibility of remitting uh, the tax from Sask Energy to the government of Saskatchewan, which is what we have requested uh, on a couple of occasions now, uh, officially requested. And we requested that due to a unanimous vote in the House. I think that's important as well, as this is not just the will of one political party. Um, everyone in the Saskatchewan Le- Legislative Assembly uh, voted to change uh, the remitter from away from our Crown utility uh, to the the government of Saskatchewan, um, so that we cannot remit and and treat Saskatchewan families as fairly as as we are able, and it would be um, qu- quite uh, I think equally troublesome if the federal government did not respect the unanimous vote in a provincial assembly. Uh, that uh, again is uh, no way for us to be bringing, building a country or bringing a country uh, together. Uh, in particular, in this case, when the decision is just simply to mirror what the federal government has done, and so uh, a lot of troublesome points along the way. Um, we would reiterate the ask that uh, really makes all of this go away is expand uh, what was a very political decision that the federal government had made to capture or retain some of their uh, seats that they have in Atlantic Canada should there be an election. And that's ultimately what it was. Um, but to actually treat all Canadian families equally. And if you're going to remove the carbon tax on one form of heating, in this case, heating fuel, uh, remove it on all forms of, of home heating. Uh, heating our homes is not an option. It's not a want to have. It's a need to have. Um, and how we heat those homes is different across the country. Uh, the level of uh, need to heat our homes, I say, is 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 necessary from coast to coast to coast, um, but more necessary in some areas where it does uh, does get colder. And I think it speaks to the diversity of the country, and this is an opportunity for the federal government to treat Canadian families equally, and they have, um, although being requested to do so numerous times by our province, and I believe eight of other, out of ten other provinces, have refused to do so f- thus far. And so I would reiterate that request again today. It's not too late. I would think they're expecting you to blink. And as I understand it, Premier, the situation now is the Saskatchewan won't be required by law to deliver carbon tax monies to the Canada Revenue Agency until the end of next month. Are you going to blink, Premier? No, 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 we don't. uh, The Saskatchewan government doesn't make a habit of blinking uh, in, in any way. Um, w- what we are going to do is the residents are not going to pay the carbon tax uh, on how they uh, heat their homes as long as that is uh, from natural gas or electricity, which is where we have ultimately the control with the Crown-owned or the uh, provincially-owned uh, utilities that we have. The, uh, the request that we've made from the federal government, and that request, again, I would say is is due to a law being enacted here that was voted on by all parties, the NDP and the Saskatchewan party in our legislative assembly. It was a unanimous vote. Uh, the request is to transition the responsibility to re, uh, remit the carbon tax under the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act uh, to get into all of the legal legalities to change that from that responsibility from our Sask Energy Corporation to the government and ultimately the minister of, of our Crown Investment Corporations. The federal government needs to sign off on that, and uh, and we've requested it uh, twice. Um, we need to do that so that the minister is able to uh, to stand up and say, "No, listen, we're not we're not going to remit this." Um, but we certainly aren't charging it. We're going to work through some of the legalities on uh, to ensure that we can't remit it. Treat ultimately all Canadian families uh, fairly. Uh, and again, I, I think this is 
you know, just speaks to the short-sightedness of uh, some of the very political, politically charged decisions that the federal government is making. And they have a an opportunity, I think, to treat all Canadian families fairly. Um, thus far, they haven't taken it. Um, I'd ask them to do, to do just that. It's, they're not out of time. Premier, I've read some columns by folks who occupy high floors in Toronto. You must be very impressed that they're accusing you of creating a constitutional crisis. Uh, I'm also reading emails from listeners across the country who do not occupy penthouse suites. They're on your side. Are you in violation of the Supreme Court of Canada and its 2021 decision supporting the federal government, the argument that the federal government has legislative options to set a floor for a carbon price? Are you flying in the face of the Supreme Court? The federal government actually is not abiding by uh, that very uh, that very decision that the Supreme Court made. Uh, that floor was set uh, so that um, all provinces uh, would meet a, a floor benchmark. Now the federal government is changing uh, what that floor is, but only for certain areas, uh, essentially in Canada. And so, what we ask, and listen, we we agree with the federal government as far as removing the carbon tax from home heating fuel. We actually think they should go for much further and remove the whole thing altogether off of uh, at least all consumer pro- uh, uh, products, uh, gasoline and, and and everything else that they have it on. We think it's one of the major contributors to the inflationary pressures uh, that those very families that you're speaking of uh, are feeling, uh, as well as the inflationary pressures that our, our small businesses and, and industrial communities are facing across uh, the, the, the nation as well. And so we agree with the decision. We think it should be expanded, at least uh, in the eye of being fair to all Canadians. Um, that's what the decision in 2021, the Supreme Court decision, uh, did say, is that uh, the federal government did have a right um, to uh, enact a floor uh, across the nation of Canada, uh, what they have done by this very politically charged decision is really gone against uh, at least the spirit and quite likely legally um, what that Supreme Court decision had made. And so they've they've opened up all sorts of challenges legally uh, for for this administration that I I, I honestly think that uh, Canadians are, are are looking in a different direction as we look ahead uh, over the course of the next number of months and year and find our way uh, towards a, a federal election. They've opened up a number of challenges uh, when it comes to uh, just the very simple question as to, is our federal government actually treating Canadian families fairly? That's what the Supreme Court uh, decision uh, did say, is this is uh, the, the federal government does need to treat all regions and all, uh, all provinces and therefore all families fairly. Uh, this decision doesn't do any of that. Now, when it's our polling numbers, uh, Mr. Trudeau's government's polling numbers were not tanking. And particularly, we'll say it again, in Atlantic Canada, that carve-out never would have happened. Uh, but it's probably a good idea that it, that it did happen, the carve-out, because now the, the country, Canadians are, you know, as the winter develops, gets colder, are going to say, look to you, I believe, look to Saskatchewan and say, why are we paying carbon tax on, on our home heating? You mentioned earlier that eight premiers have challenged, up to eight premiers, I've challenged the federal government. What kind of support do you have from other provincial governments, other premiers, on the initiative that you've undertaken to not to not collect the carbon tax for home heating? 
I think there's broad, uh, you know, broad uh, feelings of frustration, uh, not just in maybe Saskatchewan and Alberta, where traditionally uh, uh, we find ourselves at odds with the policies of uh, like the current environment minister, current energy minister, and and the prime minister himself. Um, but across across the nation, there's a great feeling uh, in Canada as uh, you know, as as we understand that. We are a very diverse place. Um, when you look at how things are in Atlantic Canada versus Central Canada versus uh, the prairies, uh, Western and, and our Northern territories, we're a very diverse place. But that diversity is our strength. And when you see a federal government that very purposefully and methodically is treating Canadians differently uh, in one area of the country versus um, where they might live in a, in a different area of the country. I think all Canadians find that uh, very problematic. Uh, they don't find that in any way to be uh, working towards uh, building a stronger and a great nation, uh, one that I believe uh, we can have again, one that I believe we have had uh, in years gone by. We're having a little hiccup at the moment, uh, but we most certainly uh, will be able to get back there uh, to some point. And I think Canadians see that as well. We live in a great nation. Um, this is not the way to uh, to keep it great or to make it great again is by specifically carving out uh, uh, certain Canadian families and treating them differently than families in other areas of the nation. Premier Mo, what I'm seeing from uh, Canadians who get in touch with me by uh, email and text, I'm seeing emails and texts saying the Trudeau government is steering us hard, dragging us into a constitutional crisis on a number of fronts, this being one of them. What do you say to that? Well, and I, I you know, I would, this would be my response to uh, the fellows that are in the, the higher levels of uh, various office buildings across this nation as well that might say that it is Saskatchewan that is bringing us uh, toward uh, th- that very crisis. <laughs> so what Saskatchewan is doing is a response and is mirroring uh, the very same decision that the federal government made. And so uh, none of that uh, is the case. I think back to, uh, it was a couple of years ago, Roy, on this very show, uh, a colleague of mine, uh, the Premier of, of New Brunswick, uh, Premier Higgs, had made the comment, you know, <laughs> is Canada a nation or an ocean? That's right. And, and I, I think that's so relevant uh, today when you look at the, what is uh, virtually very much a, a hypocritical decision uh, to treat Canadian families differently in one area of the country where you're trying to retain, uh, you know, 10 or 10 or so of your, uh, of your MP seats uh, versus another area of the country like Saskatchewan where uh, you don't have any of the 14 seats that we have and you really don't have a hope of getting one. Um, so you, you've, essentially turned a a blind ear to those Saskatchewan families. That's not how this nation works. Um, That's how maybe the notion of the the, the Prime Minister has is how it should work. Um, But it's not how the nation works, and I think that will prove to be the case as we look ahead. So you mentioned that program that we uh, aired, I think it was three or four years ago, and uh, with you and Premier Higgs of New Brunswick, and the Premier did ask this. It makes you wonder if if, if Canada is a nation. Or a notion. So true. Premier Mo, it's going to be, I'd like to say fascinating, but it's going to be much more uh, significant and important to all of us across the country how this situation, this um, reality between the province of Saskatchewan and Mr. Trudeau's government uh, plays itself out. Thank you so much for the time and look forward to speaking with you more in 2024. Take care, Roy. Uh, take care of your voice over the next few days and wishing you and your listeners the very best in what I think will be a, a bright year for, for our nation. It's not an ocean. It is a great nation, and uh, we're going to realize that this year. Institutionally entrenched anti-Semitism. And I think we're seeing that in school boards. 
and the way in which they're simply not reacting to Jewish students being bullied physically, verbally, like classic hate behavior. Um, I can speak to, uh, there are many incidents in the Toronto District School Board. Uh, from yesterday, the former ambassador to Israel from Canada, Vivian Berkovich, our guest, joining us from Tel Aviv. And speaking to uh, the issue of anti-Semitism and the call for genocide against Jewish Canadians and against Jews around the world in these demonstrations that continue with police immediately standing by and doing nothing, essentially doing nothing. So it was very surreal yesterday, I'm sure for many of us, to see video as another pro-Palestinian demonstration took place and blocked a highway overpass on Highway 401 in Toronto, causing it to be shut down by police and separating two factions of the demonstrators, engaging in intimidation in a heavily Jewish area of the city of Toronto. The, they, were in, they were there for the same cause. They just got separated. And what did Toronto police do? Instead of removing the demonstrators, or demonstrators, because that's their job, they acted as Tim Horton's coffee delivery service and brought the bridge occupiers coffee and donuts purchased by one of their separated fellow demonstrators, all caught on video. I, I watched that several times, and I thought, did this really happen, or is this AI Joe Warmington, my great friend for many years, Toronto some columnist, a truth teller in journalism, in his column today, Joe describes the incident as a clear, I love this, Joe, you're so inventive, a double-double standard. It's not, it's not a situation to laugh at, but it's very clever. Um, let, let's, let's get at this. What was your first impression when you saw this? Well, it's similar to yours. I mean, uh, I was looking at the video from uh, Karima Saad. Uh, Karima Rules is a lawyer in Toronto. She goes out to all the protests, and I follow her a lot because she goes out and she shows us stuff. And so I actually didn't just take it at face value just the same way you did because of the AI and all the things. You don't know what's real anymore. And uh, so I, you know, I reached out to her, and she said, no, it's real. It happened. And uh, she explained it, that it wasn't quite like this police went to buy coffee for them, but but it was still uh, quite a, a, a jarring scene, not because of the goodwill of the officer. I'm sure the officer was just trying to help, but it's the overall picture of everything that's happened, where we've got people, as you just described so well, Roy, uh, screaming uh, anti-fada and, and a lot of worse things on that bridge day after day after day after day, week after week. We've had Jewish people assaulted. We've had Jewish businesses you know, that obviously burned and also many graffiti incidents and many other things. But particularly the think that this group of people who try to represent something that doesn't represent the Muslim community of Toronto, it doesn't represent anybody in Toronto, there's somebody behind it and they're saying, let's go right into the Jewish part of Toronto and intimidate and take it over. And, uh, and the police, uh, you know, have no answer for it. Uh, they've tried to you know, a couple of times throw out some, some tough words, but they haven't really backed it up with anything. The only person that I've seen that's been charged is a Jewish woman who lost her head, and, and she did that uh, terrible, you know, throat-slitting uh, kind of motion with, her, with her, her hand, and then she ended up getting charged. But other than that, uh, the, you know, it seems like the, 
these pro-Hamas, uh, that's what they are, the pro-Hamas protesters have got control of that bridge and they've got control of the police. Yeah, you know, Joe, uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect for for police and the job that they have to do is one of the most difficult in this country. I don't want to have to keep repeating that because you start to sound like you're not convinced of your own message when you repeat it constantly. But in this case, in this situation, and all this will do was just will just fuel um, uh, demonstrators, whatever you want to call them, demonstrators. Let's go with that. Occupiers of, of public property, um, disruptors of commerce. We saw it in uh, 2021 with the uh, with the rail blockages, different issue. But we saw that nothing was done. Cops have to be cops. Their job is to enforce the law. Their job is not to say, okay, I'll, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, fine. I'll take the coffee over to your buddies. It, that just, what that does, in my view, that so compromises the responsibility of police officers. And frankly, it makes them look, and I look to all the police officers listening and their families, I'm not insulting you, but it makes you look like you're participating in a Saturday Night Live skit. Well, Look, at, um, it was said well what you just said. We all respect the police, and we work with them, and, you know, I, I think bordering on love them. I mean, they, they, they put their lives on the line for us out there. Yes, they do. I worry. I know you do, too. And I talked to my pal Ross McLean, who's a former Toronto police officer. He worries all night about the people he knows out there, you know, on icy nights and, you know, dangerous situations. But you did your job, and I did my job, and Karima did her job who wasn't doing their job this time, you know, in, in essence, has been the police. And it's political. It's not the officers in the field, not the officers who were there. They're given a message, and it's coming right from the prime minister's office, which is the people that are pro-Hamas, pro-Palestinian, are untouchable. And, uh, you know, this it's, it's just the way it is, and until that changes, now, the influence that you have on your show or I may have with my column, it does register with the police because the influences, you know, coming from Ottawa are stronger. You can see that right in the cabinet ministers and how the cabinet ministers, uh, you know, that represent the area, things like that. They're not saying anything in really strong language. You're kind of backing into it. Oh, you know, oh, shucks, the, the Highway Traffic Act doesn't allow for this. Or when you do this in a Jewish neighborhood... What should be happening is you can't go there. You can't go on the bridge. You can't protest. You can't yell at Jewish people. You can't go to their door and uh, take down you know things at their door, things like that. There needs to be a strong message to the leaders that if you do these things, you're going to be charged. You're going to be put for, for the courts. The same standard that they did for that Jewish woman who lost her coup. Uh, it was probably the right thing, the right charge. It's unfortunate. I'm told that she regrets it. Um, but nonetheless, they threw the book at her because she, you know, broke the rules. And there's a lot of rules being broken here. Bringing coffee and saying, go on that bridge and be comfortable there, that sends a horrible message to, you know, a community that's had businesses that ransacked and, and mm-hmm. other things. You know, the, 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 the individual who received the coffee looked startled. What's going on here when the police officer brought the coffee, then he seemed happy, and, 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 I, and I understand, he got a coffee. But this incident, Joe, I think to me, anyway, it's a microcosm of the greater issue that's developing. And so if demonstrators, and it come, if it comes from Trudeau's office, and I don't doubt it, because this prime minister uh, has been, um, I tweeted something yesterday, and I, 
Um, trying to find it here. I tweeted uh, something yesterday that took absolutely took off. And I, I just can't find it right now. But it, it was essentially it was uh, about – it drives me crazy when I can't find the thing I'm looking for. But it was uh, about a prime minister who prides himself constantly on being for diversity and and yet when it came to protecting and standing up for the Jewish community in this country, he was immediately absent for the longest time and has been only tacitly supportive. So if this incident, and it is to me, a microcosm of what's developing at the highest levels of government, that's a big problem. If the demonstrators are untouchable and can shut down our public infrastructure, then what are the Jewish people in this country? What are the multi-generational Jewish families to this prime minister? Question asked, answer, an answer is necessary, don't you think? Well, and, and, and the Jewish people understand it because, you know, they, their history shows what happened. Not just once, but many times that it's happening again this time. I mean, don't forget that, you know, all the people that live in this area where they're doing this horrible demonstration know the people that were murdered. They know people, their family, friends, and the woman that was charged uh, was a friend of one of the young ladies that was kidnapped. I mean, it's gross to go in and, and rub their nose in it like that. But, you know, to have a, a, a police service that's not standing up because of the politics of it, and look, there's division inside the police. You can see it. I've talked to lots of officers who don't agree with it. Um, you can see even with some of the messaging uh, from some of the senior officers that they want to get at this and they want to do their job, but the politics is so big. And so don't, let's not leave uh, Mayor Olivia Chow out of this because she's a big player in this as well. She's been horrible in terms of support. The message should be loud and clear. This is not allowed. You want to protest, uh, you know, if they want to go after Israel and Israel policy, go down to City Hall at Nathan Phillips Square and do it there or do it at Queen's Park or go to Parliament Hill. That's it. You don't go up into where people live. And it wouldn't be okay. Like uh, we use the analogy, the KKK, they can't go up into, you know, an area where there's lots of black people and say, look, uh, we have freedom to do, to do this. We wouldn't stand for that for one moment, nor should we. And uh, so, you know, this was really, really, I think this is a turning point. Look at one of the police officers, a very, very good officer, uh, by the way, I work with her. We can't define people on one incident, but she actually took her account down trying to defend this. And so I sense that, uh, you know, that the police realize the, the messaging of this is failed. And they've got to get back to, you know, doing what you said off the top. It's just enforce the rules that are there. It's not personal. This does not represent voters. It does not represent Muslim Canadians at all. This is representing people that are supporting terrorist, barbaric, homicide, genocidal actions that happened on October 7th. That's all it is. And so it should be called out for that. Three months ago today. So here's the... I, I think of that day, you know, Roy, I woke up uh, about three in the morning. I saw all the stuff on Twitter and I realized right there that there would be a real test ahead for Canada. Mm -hmm. If you look at my early columns, I talked about that. And I talked about sticking up for the Jewish community and sticking up against anti-Semitism. And I talked about it and wrote about it over and over and over in those early days. Because I could tell the words were hollow coming from the politicians. And they have failed. They have not meant it. They have not supported the Jewish community. And they've tried to find some sort of an equality between... Sorry, Joe, I just cut you off. ...and terror group. 
And so this is how you end up where we are. And I'm glad you're, you know, look at you. You're, you've got laryngitis. You're fighting through. Uh, that's why I'm talking a little longer, hoping to rag the puck for you. But <laughs> look, at, uh, you know, the Jewish people know, they need to know that there are people that have their backs. If, if their prime minister doesn't, uh, average people that I talk to every day sure as hell do. You know, it's, it's very interesting because in our last half hour, we spoke with... Um, Premier Scott Noll of Saskatchewan, about the decision he's made to not collect the carbon tax on uh, on heating uh, fuels, on home heating. And he brought the issue of Blaine Higgs, the Premier of New Brunswick, who was on the program with Premier Moe a couple of years ago. And Premier Moe uh, remembered a quote from that interview featuring Premier Higgs, who said, I'm going to play it for you right now, but who said essentially something I think that is very much a fact of life today. Here's Premier Higgs. It makes you wonder if our, if, if Canada is a nation or a notion. So there you are, Joe. I mean, this was following a Premier's meeting with Trudeau that he said that. But when we have developments such as the ones that are taking place now in this country, it does make you wonder if we have a nation or or, or, or the Canada is a nation or a notion. No, we have we have a notion. We have a Trudeau notion. It's all about Justin Trudeau. It's not even about the people that surround him, uh, but you know they go along for the ride. He's way way down in the polls. He's trying to cling to power. He's very good at that. It will not surprise me if he can achieve, you know, some sort of a thrust to gain power again. But that's what the focus of Canada is. And that's why he's doing this. And this is why you know I have no respect for anybody in that caucus. Because they're counting votes. They're looking and say, where is the vote? The Jewish community is 2.2%. And they think that they're going to get Muslim vote and other, you know, anti-people that are against the Israel and all that vote. But they're forgetting that all those people, and I've talked to many, many of them, they saw what happened October 7th, and they know what happened. And they don't, they don't go for that. They don't agree with it. And of course, the propaganda campaign against Israel is just, you know, incredible. Uh, you, you hear all of this stuff about Israel, genocide, all that stuff. But, you know, when you look into it, and I have, I've talked to people in Israel and everywhere else, just every time I hear something, I check it out. And it's just propaganda. And, of course, you know, the media doesn't know what to do because you don't want to get on the wrong side of the police. Look, at the police, this is one call yesterday, and those are good police officers out there. They're, they're under a lot of pressure. They don't know what to do. They can't win either way. If they say, no, you can't take the coffee on, then that's on video. And then they look like they're mean. You know, they can't win. But I think what they need to do, and a lot of cops have told me today, Roy, that what you do in a situation like that is you say, look, everyone's cold. We'll go get the people on the bridge. They can drink their coffee down here. And that's the end of it. You don't have to bring the coffee up. They're yeah. not valets for people that are breaking the law. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and, and don't worry about the politics because guys like Roy Green and Joe Warmington, Ross McLean and you know, obviously all the others, Brian Lilly, there's lots of great uh, columnists around. We'll have your back because, you know, we all know the difference between good policing and also political policing. We cannot do the math on what we're going to be talking about now. Well, I mean, my guests can. I can't. And uh, this is about a new book that's on, uh, that's available through... Uh, Queen's University and McGill Press. So the book is Dirty Money, 
Financial Crime in Canada. And the authors and professors are Christian. I've got to say it right this time. I've got to pronounce this correctly. It's been driving me nuts for years. Christian Leuprecht, not Luprecht. Nicely done, Roy. I'm sorry, Christian. I apologize. Every time I thought I've got to say this correctly, but I anglicized it. But I just got back from Switzerland, so I can't do it to you. It's Christian Leuprecht. Good to talk to you. Good afternoon. Queen's University, Royal Military College. And Jamie Farrell, at Charles Sturt University in Australia. And uh, uh, Pro- Professor Farrell, thank you very much for joining us. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much for having us on. Financial Crimes Investigator Instructor at the Graduate School of Policing and Security at Charles Sturt University in Canberra, Australia, formerly with the CBSA. And uh, we do know that Pris- uh, Christian Leiprecht, the uh, professor from Queen's and RMC, has so many areas of expertise, national security. And this falls into the, uh, into the uh, realm of um, national security. So the book, let me just say this. Our guests write that lawmakers at every level of government in this country are disengaged from trying to intercede with national financial criminal activity, while police are too engaged with their own investigations to initiate new ones. So there's massive financial organized crime involved, and this massive financial organized crime has almost no chance of being discovered, and uh, any discoveries leading to prosecution. Christian, let me start with you. Uh, where do we start? This is this is really, really alarming. And that's the aim of the book, to raise awareness and raise the level of public informed debate about this issue, because it affects every Canadian here. Look, there's a recent Treasury Department estimate in the United States that some $113 billion were laundered in and through Canada just in the last year. Those are astounding amounts of money. Those are monies on which, by and large, tax is not being paid. Those are monies that are coming from everything from fentanyl transactions to human trafficking to human smuggling. And of course, much of it ends up, for instance, running through the Canadian real estate sector. So it's a major contribution to driving up the cost of living. But unfortunately, we have rather ineffective agencies in this country in order to contain the problem. We're highly attractive for international organized crime um, and uh, other malfeasance to run their money through the country. And we have very little political will um, to get a handle on it. um, And the consequences are evident in the community and public safety of our streets. That's very scary. Professor Farrell, the the, the words um, vast financial underworld are used. Please excuse my voice. I'm trying to get over this laryngitis. But the, the, ter- the words a vast financial underworld are used. And we're not talking just about a vast financial underworld contained within Canada, but it's a vast financial underworld, as I understand it, that in, is focused on Canada but has international tentacles. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. There's these these financial crimes that we're talking about are inherently transnational in nature. It's not just a domestic problem, although it is having severe domestic consequences. These transnational criminals are operating with this real veil of secrecy because the crimes that they're committing and the way that they're covering them up are just so complex and so difficult to get ahead of. And like Christian was just talking about, that real 
inefficiency in our regime and our financial crime regime is adding to that. And it creates all of these weaknesses and loopholes that allows these criminals to continue operating. So we have the RCMP, we have provincial and municipal police, there's FinTrack, and we feel reasonably secure. Most of us as Canadians feel that, yeah, it'll be taken care of. If there's, if there's, if there's monetary financial crime taking place, it'll be intercepted, most of it, and it'll be taken care of. But that is not the case because the political arm in this country at all levels of government just are not interested. It baffles the mind, Christian. You and I have talked about many, many things over the years. I still have trouble getting my head around how this continues, how this goes on, how governing parties continue and, and opposition parties don't uh, don't hold them accountable and it's not raised publicly. It's, it's hugely, hugely, hugely disturbing and affects each and every one of us. Yeah, so look, financial crime is probably the most complex crime um, out there. And so it is extremely difficult to investigate. It requires an extremely high level of skill set. We all know, for instance, the challenges that the RCMP faces um, simply kind of doing the everyday policing. You can imagine the challenges that they have with these vastly complex investigations. There's relatively oversight and insight into our police services on these investigations. When an investigation doesn't go anywhere, they just box it up and they put it aside. Uh, there's very little ability to see the value for money that Canadian taxpayers are getting in terms of the investments that they're making in these investigations. But look, if there's any doubt about the ineffectiveness of our agencies, um, Gary Clement, who stood up and ran the Integrated Proceeds of Crime uh, team for the RCMP in the 1990s, and who has his own recent book out, has a chapter in this book that lays out the ineffectiveness of the RCMP and how basically the RCMP just let uh, financial crime and capacities atrophy over the years. Um, and the, the Royal Commission on Money Laundering in British Columbia has laid out in detail the extent of the problem, the methods that are being used, the channels, the complicity by the professions, including accounting, um, members of the legal profession, members of the, of, uh, of the real estate community, um, and the unwillingness and inability, unwillingness by politicians and inability by our agencies to rein this in. So Canada... Um, we have all these international tentacles. Canada is a preferred destination because of what you just said. Other nations are doing a better job, I take it. Well, I think we're certainly emerging as a weak link uh, within certainly the allied and partner community of Western countries. There's a recent report that details the extent to which, for instance, Chinese triads are now using Canada in order to export fentanyl to Australia, of course, where uh, where where uh, where Dr. Fail resi resides. Um, but I think it's just that politicians have other priorities. This is hard for them to wrap their head around. Uh, same thing for much of the intelligence and the law enforcement community. And we have a great financial intelligence unit that is uh, set up in a way that makes it very difficult for them to share the intelligence that they have uh, or to engage in enforcement action. So in the end, there's lots that could be done. Uh, the question is um, uh, what we can learn from other countries is the willingness to do things. And Dr. Fail can talk about, for instance, about two of the four major banks in Australia being levied with billion-dollar fines. The largest fine that FinTrack has levied in this country is $7.7 million. Wow. Uh, tell us again before we take a break how much money has been involved in the last year or two. 
So uh, the Treasury Board, uh, the tre- uh, so the Treasury Department in the U.S. has one estimate of about a total of 113 billion dollars. Uh, so uh, the the the, uh, uh, the the Royal Commission on Money Laundering, British Columbia, came up with a lower number. Nonetheless, the numbers are astounding. Uh, they are huge, and it uh, and they have detrimental effects uh, both for uh, communities in this country, for the cost of living in this country, um, and uh, uh, for our allies and partners, as well as, of course, uh, state capture around the world and entities that are funneling their dirty money through this country because the chances of getting caught are relatively minimal. And even if you do caught, the penalties are negligible. It's it's staggering. Lawmakers in this country at every level of government are disengaged from trying to intercede national financial criminal activity and police to engage with their own investigations to initiate new ones. Massive financial organized crime has almost no chance of being discovered leading to prosecutions in Canada. So, uh, Professor Farrell, in, in, in Australia, things are somewhat different. Tell us about that, please. A little bit, yeah. I think there's a lot more accountability. Our, our regulator and financial intelligence unit, so the equivalent of FinTrack in Canada is OddsTrack here in Australia, and they have more of an enforcement arm alongside their intelligence unit and regulator capabilities. And they have more capabilities, again, in, in the sense that they can actually interrogate some of the reports that are coming into them from the regulated entities. So things like banks and uh, other financial institutions, for example. So there's a bit more uh, interest there in actually tackling some of that intelligence that's coming in and more feedback that goes back and forth. A huge weakness of FinTrack is that it's a largely reactive administration where these voluntary reports come in from the reporting entities and there's no real back and forth. They generally don't ask for more information and there isn't feedback given to those entities. Whereas over here in Australia, it's a little bit different in there is just more of that dialogue between the reporting entities. Now, not saying things here are perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Like Professor Leprec said, it's we've had massive fines handed down to our biggest banks, two of our big four. One had over $700 million in fines handed down, the other over a billion dollars. But individuals still aren't being held accountable. People in these organizations that knew what was going on, that had the intelligence to tell them what was going on, some of them were linked back, some of these transactions were linked back to things like child sex exploitation. So when people are not being held accountable for this, companies essentially get fined and move on. So we know that the country, just like Canada, is awash with dirty money, but there seems to be a little bit more action here and and really studying and and doing comparative studies between the two. There is a bit more political will, a bit. And now that's not something you can really quantify, of course, Mm -hmm. but the results do kind of speak for themselves in that there does seem to be more of a desire to clamp down on where this dirty money is coming from, who's really responsible for it, and equipping our law enforcement agencies to really go after it. Our our border force over here, the Australian Federal Police, the Australian Taxation Office, they're all really equipped and they have specialized teams, specialized investigators to go after it. Whereas in Canada, we just haven't seen that same action 
really happen. Okay. So, so what you need is public engagement. You need public to be aware and make demands. Kristen, we have about a minute. Um, what do Canadians have to know? What, what do we have to significantly consider? The impact of this dirty money coursing through Canada is on our lives. That we need to realize that this is not a victimless crime, that this is a crime that has a direct impact on the lives of everyday Canadians, uh, whether it's in terms of their old, of public safety or it's in terms of their cost of living. They also need to realize that ultimately agencies can only act within the frameworks and the mandates and the budgets that they are given by government, and that ultimately these are political questions and political priorities. And that governments in this country and politicians in this country have simply not made it a priority for a host of reasons. Um, and here's an opportunity for them to exercise more pressure and to realize that, for instance, when we're talking about things such as fentanyl, maybe we shouldn't just be talking about the consequence of what we're seeing on our streets. We should also be looking at the causes and the profit motives behind this, as well as the ability by adversarial states such as China to undermine our social fabric and our democratic institution using this type of financial crime as something that Canadians need to become much more aware of in order to be able to contain and combat it. We need to thank you for writing the book, Dirty Money, Financial Crime in Canada. Down the way where the nights are gay and the sun shines daily on the mountaintop. I took a trip on a sailing ship, and when I reached Jamaica, I made a stop at times. Section 11 is the most um, commonly requested information about. It's the, one, the gift uh, provision. And uh, effectively, he uh, received, uh, in, 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 the judgment, in my judgment at the time, a gift from um, somebody, a gift of a holiday on a private island. Sounds of laughter everywhere and the dancing girls swing to and fro. All right, we're being a little creative here. The voice uh, you heard was that of Mary Dawson, the former ethics commissioner, parliamentary ethics commissioner who convicted Mr. Trudeau of ethics violations when he uh, took the family vacation to the Bahamas, claiming that his stay at the Aga Khan's home free was because the Aga Khan was a friend. And um, Mary Dawson, who was not exactly uh, an aggressive ethics commissioner, said, no, 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 no. He wasn't your friend. He was your dad's friend. So he was convicted of an ethical misstep, a parliamentary conflict of interest act. I'm being kind, aren't I? Misstep, wow. So, so now, uh, here we go again, and there's been an, another uh, conviction of ethical violations in the SNC-Lavalin Jody Wilson-Raybould story, as you know. So here we go again. Over the last days, the issue has been Trudeau and his Jamaica vacation. And uh, a friend of the Trudeau family providing... I mean, I can't, I can't scrounge a condo in Florida for, for a week for my buddies. Just laugh at me. But Mr. Trudeau gets this mansion for 9300 bucks a night. I don't think the Swiss vacation costs that. <laughs> anyway, probably did, but anyhow. So he gets this thing, this, 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 this mansion, 
for however many days. And uh, no, it's, it's okay because it's a gift from a friend, not a gift of the family, friend of the family. Really? So who said it was okay? Well, the interim parliamentary ethics commissioner, Conrad von Finkenstein. Oh. And, and, and who, who appointed? Who saw to it that Mr. von Finkenstein became the ethics commissioner? I'm not suggesting anything yet. Uh, well, the prime minister did. Just as he did when Mario Dion became the ethics commissioner in 2018, replacing the aforementioned Mary Dawson. So what does Dion do? He finds Trudeau guilty of an ethics violation as well in the SNC-Lavalin case. So last year, Dion quits the job. It's a seven-year gig. He was appointed in 2018. But he quits the gig for health reasons. I hope he's better. But uh, he gave an interview to the National Post. And in that interview, Mario Dion, departing as the ethics commissioner, said, the public has to believe that ethics are taken seriously, and they have yet to f have any big evidence of that since 2018, so since he was appointed. Dion, by the way, found no less than five senior liberal cabinet ministers, including, as we said, the prime minister, for a second time guilty of ethics violations. This is not good. This is truly not good. Now, to provide a perspective for us on, on, this, uh, on this whole issue, uh, Duff Conacher joins us. He's the co-founder of Democracy Watch. And uh, they do really great work in keeping an eye on government and holding the responsible. And it's not an inexpensive venture. So if, you can, if you're interested to, and, and you can provide some you know, buck or two, $9,300 if you want, to support... <laughs> Uh, Democracy Watch, just get in touch with them, democracywatch.ca. It's not funny, Duff, but it, it's become, it's become, it's become a skit. It is. It's deja vu all over again. Exactly. So, the, the same uh, situation with Trudeau trying again and again to get uh, an ethics commissioner in place who will roll over like a lapdog every single time and... And let him off and uh, his cabinet ministers and all liberals off for clear violations of the law. And I think he might have found his his um, person finally in Conrad von Finkenstein, because von Finkenstein, uh, when he took the uh, office of interim ethics commissioner in August for a six-month term, he was asked to uh, the ethics committee, how many outstanding complaint situations are you looking into? He said there are uh, eight of them. And more recently, he testified again and was asked about them, and he said all eight are cleared away. Well, all eight are cleared away, and there have not been any, any uh, rulings issued by him finding anyone guilty, which means he's buried eight situations. Uh, including two situations that Democracy Watch complained about, Trudeau appointing his family friend David Johnston to look into foreign interference. Ron Finkenstein said that's fine. So he's actually, this guy in, in just four months in office has done more to gut the rules 
and has one of the worst records of ethics commissioner after being in office for only four months as an interim ethics commissioner and watch for Trudeau to try and appoint him to a seven-year term because that will guarantee that no liberals will be found guilty of ethics violations through the next election. It's a really bad situation. Yeah, and it's serious. Maybe we need a special rapporteur to get into this. (laughs) We, We really do need a public inquiry into the appointment of ethics commissioners because Democracy Watch has requested all the documents, uh, uh, communications with Mun Finkenstein for his appointment process. And we just recently received a response from the Cap- Trudeau cabinet. And they said, oh, we're going to bury that for the next six months. We're not going to release any records till July, even though they're required under the Access to Information Act to release records within 30 days. And so they're violating the federal open government law, the Access to Information Act, to hide how this guy was appointed. And then we have this trip where, you know, the past ethics commissioner, you have the clip from Mary Dawson. She said, I know there's an exemption for gifts from friends in the law, but if that friend has dealings with the federal government, I'm still going to disallow it because that that is an unethical situation. They're a friend, but they're also, in effect, a lobbyist. And we just cannot have uh, the law interpreted in a way that allows lobbyists to be giving gifts to uh, politicians that they're lobbying. And so she said in her ruling on the Aga Khan's gift of the Bahamas trip to the Trudeau family, even if I had found that Aga Khan was a, was a friend of Trudeau, I still would have said it was an illegal gift because uh, the Aga Khan uh, had dealings with the government, trying to get money from the government each year and lobbying the government to get that money. Uh, but the new Von Finkenstein has said, no, it's fine. If it's a gift from a friend, you don't even have to disclose it. It can be given in secret. And it doesn't even matter whether uh, what his office has said is it doesn't even matter. Uh, it's completely exempt. It doesn't matter if the person has dealings with the government. The exemption is blanket. And that's just one of multiple ways. We don't even know the full extent because he's hiding his ruling. Uh, the multiple ways in which he is gutting the rules with bad interpretations. You know, that's really very disturbing. And uh, disturbing as well is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Mr. Trudeau arranging who has the position of ethics commissioner, parliamentary conflict of interest commissioner, ethics commissioner, flies contrary to parliamentary law, doesn't it? Don't the opposition parties, aren't they supposed to be engaged in the selection process for the ethics commissioner? Well, this is the game that Trudeau's been playing. They did post the position where Mario Dion resigned for health reasons, as you mentioned, in the spring of last year. And they posted it and then said, oh, we, we can't find anybody, so we're going to appoint an interim ethics commissioner. Well, under the Parliament of Canada Act, only the cabinet gets a say in who appoints the interim ethics commissioner. So if there was likely someone very qualified who applied, and they played this game before uh, and delayed the appointment of Mario Dion for, for uh, a full year, said, we can't find anybody, we can't find anybody. It was a lie. We filed access, access to information requests, Democracy Watch did, and, and finally, two years later, after uh, they violated the law for two years by hiding the information, it came out that actually they had five qualified candidates and could have appointed them. 
And they're doing the same thing now. I'm sure there were qualified candidates back in the summer. They could have appointed someone, but they would have had to consult with opposition parties about who that person would be. And instead, they said, oh, we didn't find anybody, and so we're going to appoint von Finkenstein and handpick him. And what has he gone on to do? Bury eight situations. Clearly, probably some violations in there. And interpreted the rules in a way um, that is essentially gutting key rules. I mean, he's actually said it's fine for top government officials to own $60,000 worth of shares in companies that they make decisions about. Wow. Well, that just allows you to make money from your own decisions. Because all you do is make a decision that will help the company you own shares in. The company's share price goes up and you make money. And he said that's fine. There's no problem with that at all. There's no conflict of interest created by that at all. So this is this guy is a dedicated lapdog. And as I say, he's in four months in, in the job, he's got one of the worst records I've ever seen in the last 30 years of an ethics commissioner across the, across the country. So, Duff, let's go through a couple of things fairly quickly here. Was there conflict of interest in the appointment of von Finkenstein as the ethics commissioner because Trudeau participates in cabinet meetings. Yes, and uh, Democracy Watch went to court over this, over the appointment of Mario Dion and also as ethics commissioner back in 2017 and also the appointment of Nancy Belanger as commissioner of lobbying. Um, both controlled the, the processes for their appointments controlled by cabinet, controlled by the prime minister's office even though both offices were investigating the prime minister and other cabinet ministers at, at that time. And unfortunately, the Federal Court of Appeal ruled that, yes, they were biased. Cabinet is clearly biased when choosing their own watchdogs. But a decision by the Supreme Court of Canada back in 2001 called Oceanport, one of the worst decisions the Supreme Court has ever made, allows cabinet to choose all of the heads of agencies, boards, commissions, and tribunals the information commissioner, the auditor general, the head of elections Canada, allows them to control it all the way in secret uh, and essentially handpick lapdogs if they want um, because the Supreme Court said that they should be allowed to do this. Uh, they can't do it with judges. They can't do it with heads of human rights commissions or parole boards that, that decide whether people stay in jail. But for every other agency, board, commissioner, tribunal, they can choose their own lapdogs. And it's a really bad decision, and we were challenging this to try and get that up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court refused to hear our appeal, and the Federal Court of Appeal, though, said it. The cabinet is biased in these situations, but the Supreme Court has said it's okay. It's not okay. You cannot choose your own judge. It's fundamental to having a, a rule of law, which is fundamental to having democracy. But unfortunately, the Supreme Court allows it. And that's why the opposition parties have to really push back, hopefully, in the next couple of months, to stop Conrad von Finkenstein from being made ethics commissioner for the next seven years. They have to be consulted, and they should insist that they see a short list of all the qualified candidates and that they decide all together, as all the parties together, as to who will be the ethics commissioner for the next seven years. Because that person has to be seen to be impartial, cannot be chosen by the ruling party and the prime minister alone in secret. It just can't happen again. I know hopefully the opposition parties will actually try and stop at this time. Yeah. They haven't in the past. It's a responsibility. Um, what do you make of the fact that the prime minister's office initially said that Mr. Trudeau was paying for the vacation, and then I don't know whether a penny dropped or something leaked, and then but suddenly it was, oh no, it's a free vacation 
from a family friend. What do you make of that? Yeah, it wasn't a leak. It was Glenn McGregor, a former CTV uh, a reporter who's now freelance. Um, he dug and dug, and he didn't accept the initial answer and and pushed uh, and got the truth out. And this is what we've seen from Trudeau again and again and again. Whenever there's a situation that raises questions of unethical behavior or something embarrassing, the initial thing that the PMO says is a lie. And then they hope everyone accepts the lie. And when people dig, you know, like in the SNC-Lavalin situation of pressuring the attorney general, uh, Trudeau actually lied seven times before he finally admitted that, yes, there was pressure. And then his line turned to, but the pressure was appropriate. But his first seven statements about the SNC-Lavalin situation were lies. And that's what they did in this case. They lied. There's no way that the PMO's office could not have known that Trudeau's was not paying $9,300 a night for his family to stay down there. It's just totally implausible. So they tried to get away with another lie. And Glenn McGregor dug and pushed and got the truth out, thankfully. Yeah. So while you're saying that, I started to think about the delays in Trudeau are finally agreeing to or accepting a public inquiry into foreign election interference, interference in, in Canada. We'll come back to the special rapporteur stupidity. Um, is that another ethical breach that concerns you? Are we, are we talking ethics here? Yes, and hopefully the inquiry commissioner will not do what David Johnston did, which uh, as a friend of the PMO participated in a cover-up because he said when he issued his report, there was an ocean of government uh, of documents to look at, but we just looked at a large lake and we've reached our conclusion. <laughs> well, you can't just look at a, la- a, no, a large lake can't. of documents when there's an ocean of documents. You've got to look at all of them before you reach a conclusion. You know, you're, you're, contradic- it, you're t- contradicting yourself. Exactly. And so when if this commissioner only looks at some of the documents and then says, oh, I've looked at enough, I'm, I'm just not going to look at these other ones. I mean, who knows what the other documents contain? <laughs> they could contain the incriminating evidence. So uh, uh-huh. hopefully this commissioner will do her job. For the first time ever, an inquiry commissioner, Commissioner Hogue for the uh, Commission into Foreign Interference, was chosen by all the parties. It should be done that way all the time. Okay. All watchdogs, all judges... Everyone who enforces any law or investigates the government or any party, okay. the, the, the person should be chosen by all the parties, and hopefully we'll get an ethics commissioner chosen the same way this time. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 